Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. You'll find that on page 948 if you're using the church Bible. And as usual, I want to encourage you to have your own copy open, reading along with me. And before we do look at Romans 12, 9 through 21, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching and the hearing and keeping of his word. Father, again, we are humbled and we are grateful to know that you, the living God, will speak to us and that your word is pure, like silver refined in a fire seven times. We thank you, our God, that your word is like a a two-edged sword, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we pray, our God, that you would reveal There's areas of our life this morning where we need the gospel to work, where we need Christ to be formed in us. Oh, Father, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit, that Christ would indwell us this morning, that we would know him moving and working in this place. We pray that you would open every deaf ear and blind eye, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the wonderful riches of the Lord Jesus for us this morning. Father, have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, there the Apostle Paul, having moved from a general application and then applications to individuals not to be puffed up, not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, now turns his attention to the congregation as a whole, and he says, let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, you may not realize the importance of this, but 1662 was an enormous year in church history. It was a year in which 2,000 ministers were ejected from their pulpits over political strife and turmoil in England, over the Church of England and, and the role of what ministers in the church were called to do and what role the state had over what they did. And the great ejection was actually the great ejection of many of the finest theologians in the history of the church. And one of those who you maybe have heard of is 
Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson is the most loved of the Puritans for his pithy Puritan sayings. He was one of the foremost members of the Westminster Assembly, and he was involved on the front end of everything that happened leading up to the Great Ejection. And what's interesting about this period in church history and what's interesting about Thomas Watson's role in that period is that there is a collection of sermons called the Farewell Sermons that you can find online. They're still in print today. And they are the final sermons that these 2,000 ministers preached to those congregations as they were being ejected out of their pulpits. Now, you might think that they could pick passages that talked about the justice of God against those who have done them wrong. And and you might think, well, that's fair. God is going to pour out all his vengeance on all wrongdoing. He's going to make every wrong right on the great day of judgment. What would be so wrong about that? But as you search the scriptures that are chosen for these final sermons in this volume, when you come to Thomas Watson's sermon on that Sunday morning, August 17th, 1662, he stood before his congregation and the text that he picked that morning was from John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And in what is one of the finest expositions of that verse in all of church history, Watson charged his congregation first that they would learn to love each other as Christians in the body of Christ, that they would be fervent about their love to one another, that they would love the weakest believer, that they would love the strongest believer, that they would love the most gifted and the least gifted, that they would love those believers that they don't like, that they would love the fellowship of the body, because that's what the Lord Jesus wanted for his church. And at the outset of that sermon, Watson noted that it was often remarked in that day, and you might think in the Puritan era, oh, they were all reading their Bible so much, and they were reading all these masterful Puritan theologians. Certainly the church was full of people that loved each other, and Watson remarks at the beginning of that sermon, I don't know how true it is, but there's a saying that there's not much love within the Christian church, and that's how it was perceived. And so at the point when he and this congregation had been, had been so wronged, Watson turns to the congregation and he preaches this masterful sermon and he says, we are called as Christians to love one another as Christ has loved us. And then he says in the sermon, and then we are to love our enemies. We are to love those who have persecuted us. We are to love those who do harm to us. We are to seek good for all men. All men are made in the image of God. All men are molded and shaped out of the same lump of clay. And we are called and commanded by the Lord to love in those two streams, Watson says. Love to the saints, love to the world. Now, it's interesting because that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 12. The apostle is now um, giving the implications of the gospel, and he's saying, what should a gospel-shaped life look like? What does it mean you profess faith in Christ? How then should your life take form in light of the cross? What does a cross-shaped life look like? And Paul told us at the outset those big principles are that we, like our Lord Jesus, would be living sacrifices, that our lives would be poured out in service that we would present our bodies as acceptable sacrifices to God, that we would prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that we would not be conformed to the world or, or the things in the world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then he turned, knowing the deceitfulness of the human heart, and Paul spoke to every individual there in Rome, and he said, don't be haughty, don't think more of yourself than you ought to think. You're laying your life down as a sacrifice to Jesus. Don't get puffed up with spiritual pride. And instead, serve others with the gifts God's given you. Now he turns his attention to the whole of the congregation. 
And from 9 to 21, he gives this machine gun of applications. It's a tapestry of applications. We could take every one of these phrases, and I could preach a sermon on every one. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 12 sermons on Romans 12, 9 to 21. We're going to get through one. So you're going to get big, broad principles this morning. You're going to get the bird's eye view, and then you can dig in and you can draw out all the other applications that need to be made. But this text really falls into two places. First, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the gospel shapes our lives to love those within the church, and secondly, that the gospel shapes our lives to love those in the world. Now, there is something you have to know at the outset. If we took Romans 12, 9 to 21 and we ripped it out of the context of Romans, you would have theological liberalism. That is not Christianity. Paul starts this chapter by the mercies of God, the redemptive mercy of God in Jesus. The only people who can do what Paul is telling us to do in Romans 12, 9 through 21, are those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. It's those whose lives have been changed. They've been born of God's spirit. They've been regenerated by the work of the spirit. They, they and only they can actually do what's in Romans 12, 9 through 21. I have several friends who have gone to very liberal Ivy League schools, divinity schools. And for years, their message was the message of Romans 12, 9 to 21, minus the message of the Bible about what Jesus did at the cross to redeem his people. And their message was a message of moralism. And their message was a message of just be a good person and live a moral life. It was, in the words of Mike Horton, a Christless Christianity. Christ as example, not Christ as Savior. Christ as preeminently example. He was a good person. He was a just person. He was an upright person. He did all the right things. He taught all the right things. And if we just try to live by the ideas of Jesus, listen to me this morning, the ideas of Jesus are meaningless and empty apart from the person and the work of Jesus. Apart from the person of Jesus, the divine son of God who became man, who took to himself a human nature, who was and now is and forever will be God and man in one person who laid down his life on the cross is the epicenter of Christianity. It is everything that Paul has driven home in the first part of this book. And to miss that is to miss the whole of Christianity. And it's interesting to me that when we go to draw the connection between what Paul says in Romans 1 through 11 and what Paul says here in chapters 12 and following, the connecting point really finds itself in what we are told about Jesus Christ in chapter 5 that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And at the right time when we were enemies, Jesus laid down his life for us. God demonstrated his love. The Father demonstrated his love. Christ demonstrated his love by laying down his life for us when we were enemies, when we were rebels against the God of heaven, when we were, in the words of R.C. Sproul, those who had committed cosmic treason, Jesus came, sent from his father, and laid down his life. And in that way, he secured everlasting redemption because of his everlasting love and the work of the atonement that he did for us on the cross. Now, here's the connection. Thomas Manton, in that, Thomas Watson, in that great sermon I mentioned, said, Jesus Christ has given us a great evidence of his love to us. He bled love at every vein. He bled love at every vein. 
And so the natural implication is if Jesus shed his blood out of every vein for you, and if you are in Jesus Christ, and if Jesus's life was a life of self-sacrificial dying love for his people, then it's natural that what Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room would then trickle down to us and would necessarily manifest itself in our lives. If I have loved you, you ought to love one another. If I have loved you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And so the Apostle Paul picking up on that argument goes to the foremost thing. Now, it's interesting. Paul's talked about faith through the whole book because it's faith what saves you. Faith is the instrument that saves you. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. It is not your works of love. If you are trusting in your works of love, you will perish forever. It doesn't matter how many you've done. You will fall miserably short of the standard of God's holiness, which is perfection, which only Jesus Christ accomplished. Faith is what saves us. Paul has been abundantly clear about that. It is not your works of love that save you, but God never gives faith without giving love. And he never gives saving faith to the souls of his people without giving them a love that that faith will work by in the Christian life. And the apostle Paul will tell us elsewhere that love is the bond of perfection and that all the laws fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And yet I think, that what was said about believers in the days of the Puritans in their own churches is true of us as well. That the greatest thing that's lacking in the Christian fellowship is a heart of gospel-driven love for the believers. You know, we love to love people that are like us. We love to love people that benefit us. We love to love people who we gain things from, either in friendship or in society or in business, And we love to dislike and ostracize people that we don't see as a benefit to us. We love to turn away from people who have different personalities from us. We love love to disdain and speak ill of people who fail and who have failures in their life while not realizing all the failure in their own lives because we don't like that person. Let me say a few things this morning. The Apostle Paul does not say you have to like everyone in the fellowship. He says you have to love them. It's a very important categorical distinction. There's a story, elderly woman in her 90s who went up to a well-known reformed theologian at a conference, and he had just preached on Christian love and, and the importance of loving um, the way that the Lord Jesus and the apostles so set out for us. And, um, and she said, you know, that was so wonderful. She said, the older I get, the more I love the saints. And he, and he thought, oh, that's so sweet. And she said, and the less I trust them. <laughs> and I often tell that because we don't want to conflate and confuse what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying this undifferentiated principle of emotional, I love you. That's not what Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching a very carefully defined Principle. And notice that as he unpacks it, he qualifies it at every point. He nuances it. Notice verse 9. Let love be genuine without hypocrisy. It is possible for you to speak and seemingly act in love while having a heart of enmity and hostility. In that sermon that Watson preached in 1662, he used the illustration of a bee. He said, don't be like the bee who has honey in his mouth and a stinger in his tail, who holds out the honey, but he's ready to sting. That's a very, very helpful illustration. 
um, we can very easily, and if we know our own hearts, we know this is true, we can very easily put on a pretense of love while having bitterness and enmity in our hearts. And that's not what the apostle is calling for. Paul is calling for what Jesus called for, a heart response of love to the people of God. I always found it remarkable that when Jesus talks about forgiving your brother, he says, you'll be forgiven. And obviously, he means you're evidenced that you've been forgiven if you forgive your brother. But he says, if each one of you from the heart forgives his brother, from the heart. And you know, it's sobering because we could pour out our whole life in service. Paul says this, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13. He doesn't just say, it's love, not knowledge. He never says that. He says, knowledge, he says faith, he says charity, acts of kindness, acts of faith, miraculous workings without love is nothing. It's empty. It's a clanging symbol. It's, it is meaningless. It is, to borrow another illustration out of Watson's sermon, it is like fire painted on the wall that warms no one. It's like fire painted on the wall. And the Apostle John warned about this, didn't he, when he said, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. If your brother is in need and you say, go, go, be warmed, be filled. How has the love of God been manifest in you? You know, the chief, the chief mark that someone belongs to Jesus Christ is that they love like Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul begins to unpack that idea and he goes beyond the idea of sincere love, notice what he says next in qualification, abhor what is evil. Because now, possibly, you can hear someone saying, well, the church should just love each other and everybody should just get along and it doesn't matter what people are being taught and it doesn't matter how people are living. You just need to, all you need is love. And Paul is telling us all you need is love in the Christian life as you continue trusting Jesus Christ. But that love is a love that will abhor evil. That means if you love God, you are going to love the truth of the scriptures. If you love the Lord, you're going to love sound doctrine. You're going to hate everything that is against the scriptures, every perversion of the scriptures, every twisting of the scriptures, every falsehood that does damage to the souls of men and women, you will abhor. And every false living, you will abhor. You know, it's become very trendy in our day to talk about compassion for the sake of witness. And I am for compassion for the sake of witness. If you are not compassionate to people in witnessing to them, you will lose your witness to them. But when we talk about compassion in witness, we need to be very careful that we are not being dismissive of sin. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians actually says to uncover the hidden things of darkness, that it's even shameful to speak of such things. So there are things and, and there are lifestyles and there are practices that every believer is to abhor. And you know, the Lord Jesus was the perfect embodiment of what it meant to love without hypocrisy and to abhor evil. Um, there's this great description of the Lord Jesus in Psalm 45, where David is predicting the messianic king. And, and he says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And he says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And then he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hated sin. So one who is united to Jesus is one who more and more 
is learning to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And that means in loving others, we don't want others to appropriate into their life teaching or living that God hates. And loving someone means telling them in love what God loves and what God hates. And it is actually unloving to approve the hidden things of darkness. So notice how Paul is at every point qualifying everything that he's saying for us so that we understand. But then notice what he says in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show seek to show hospitality. Now, Paul is drawing together all these things and he's saying, here is what life in the body should look like. This is what a Christian fellowship should look like. So that when people come into our fellowship, they should be able to discern these characteristics. They should be able to say, here's a church full of people who love each other as if they're family. That's your identity. If you're a Christian, you are a member of the family of Jesus Christ. You are are part of the divine family. You are sons and daughters of God. That means that every other Christian is your brother or sister or mother or father in the faith. When Peter um, so brazenly asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, we, gave, we left everything. What are we going to get? Jesus said, there's no one who's left houses or lands or fathers or mothers for my sake who will not in this life receive back a hundredfold lands and houses and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters with persecution and in the life to come, everlasting life. And what Jesus is saying is that when you, when you trust in him, when you've been brought into his kingdom, you've been brought into the divine family, and the way we should view each other is as if we are brothers and sisters in Jesus. There is almost nothing I enjoy more than when I'm sitting in my living room, and I think this happened this morning, and Micah comes running out, and he says, hey, Eli, and he can't wait to show Eli something, and you start to see the brotherly affection, and then they start cutting up and laughing and giggling because they love each other, because they realize that they're brothers, and they want to do everything together, and they want to share things together, and they have an affection for each other, very imperfectly, many times, but they have an affection for each other, and it's evident to anyone who looks on that they are brothers, and that's the way it's supposed to be in the body. We are to view each other as the divine family. It was that quote by C.S. Lewis where he said that if you saw the, the least uh, notable and the most despised believer in this world in, in glory, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. That that's what's awaiting the saints, that every one of you, if you have the seed of faith in you, are headed for glory. And that means the way that we view each other is we should love each other because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are new creations. You are not just image bearers of God, but you have been recreated and are being conformed to the image of Jesus. How can we not love people who have been conformed and are being conformed to the image of Jesus? Now, this is a somewhat shocking statement. I think it's accurate. So before you react, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it, not me. Um, And he's with Jesus, so you can't email him about it. But you could hold on to that question about it if you don't like it. He said, if you love your earthly family members who are not believers more than the saints, you're not a Christian. If you love your physical family members who are not Christians more than you love the saints, that is, I would 
qualify it this way, arguably evidence that you are not a Christian. Because Christians realize, you know, you see that with the disciples after Jesus has been crucified, they're banded together as a family. John has taken Mary into his home. Mary has taken John to be her son. They are together. They are praying. Everything that you see here set out in Romans 12, 9 through 13, you see them doing that. You see them on the day of Pentecost pulling together and selling their possessions and giving and, and caring for everyone as they have needs. You see the work of the Spirit of God manifesting itself in the loving life that the family of God, the church, is living together. And I understand that you might not like that Lloyd-Jones quote, but it's true. It's true. And you see it in the Bible. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it in the epistles. You see believers in one sense are more family than flesh and blood family. In the Bible, adoption into God's family makes you more of a son than if you were a physical adopted child in Israel. If you were an Israelite in the Old Covenant and you were not a believer, you were less a child of God than those who have been adopted by faith in Jesus into his family. And so Paul is stressing this point. Now, I want to read this to you because I re- this really hit home with me this week as I prepared this. Jonathan Edwards, as he as he sets out the idea of what this should look like in the church. He says, Shall not we who are the visible members of the body of this meek and peaceable Jesus be peaceable one to another? Alas, we have enemies enough to fight with without fighting with one another. We had need mutually to assist each other against our common enemies. Let us not do as the Jews did when Jerusalem was besieged, one while fighting with the Romans and then destroyed one another. We are but a little handful. Christ has but a little flock. And shall his sheep devour one another? It's enough for wolves to devour, and not that they should devour one another. Christians are a small number who are traveling toward heaven, the region of peace, and following our mild and gentle leader. And shall we devour one another by the way? Let it not be. Oh, let not such a thing be named among Christians. Let us rather join our hearts and hands in worshiping our God and in serving our dear Savior who died for the sake of our peace. Let us be full of quietness and meekness. Let us bear each other's burdens and bear with each other's infirmities and rather turn good for evil. Let us do what we can to help each other in duty and not spare time to contend. Let us pray for each other and be full of benevolence, quietness, meekness, and a forgiving temper. Oh, that that was true of the Christian church. Again, not churches that bear the name Christian but don't preach the truth, but the churches that hold to the truth of the gospel, churches that hold to the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, churches that hold to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Savior. Oh, that that would be the truth, that the peace of Christ, as we heard earlier, my peace, Jesus said, I give you. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give unto you. Now, if that's not hard enough, Paul goes on to now say that the gospel should shape our life in regard to loving those in the world. Notice what he says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And then notice verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I want to say this as emphatically as I can this morning. If we do not learn Romans 12, 9 through 13, we will never 
learn Romans 9, 14 through 21. If we do not labor diligently to see the community of faith be a loving community of serving one another, of praying with one another, of caring for one another and giving to one another and building each other up. If we're not doing that, we will never learn to do it to the world. This is a beautiful way of capturing it. You're never going to be a bringer of harmony, a peacemaker in the world, if you're a bringer of disharmony in the church. Um, One of the most sobering verses in the whole scripture is uh, in Proverbs where it says, the Lord says he hates six things, yea, seven are an abomination. One of them is he who sows discord among brethren. He who sows discord. And I've seen it. And when you see it, it is painful to watch. It is painful to watch someone insisting on their way and pressing for their their own agendas and their own rights and their own reputation, their own dignity, and and everybody around it, them can see it. And it causes so much harm to the body. And it doesn't exemplify the meekness and the humility and the peacefulness of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We can qualify this a thousand ways. I'm guilty of that. We can qualify. What about justice? I know. Paul's going to get to that. He says God's going to execute vengeance on everybody who's doing wrong and who won't repent. So that's covered. That's covered. We're called to bless. We've been blessed in the gospel. We're called to bless, not just in the body, but we are called to bless those who persecute us. I've told you that story about the famous Christian singer in Eritrea who was thrown in those metal boxes and beaten repeatedly for months and years. My friend, my friend Zaki was her pastor, and he told me the story that, they, that her captors would bring her out of those metal box, boxes in the heat of summer, and she had been so beaten and so malnourished. And, on one, and I cried just thinking about this. On one occasion, he said, she hugged her, the, the man who had been beating her and keeping guard on her, and she said, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you'll know the same grace that I've come to know. Listen to me very carefully this morning. That's what Paul is talking about. That's supernatural. That's not natural. That is as sincere and without hypocrisy as it comes. Our natural inclination is to to get angry and vindictive and want to get revenge. That is the natural inclination of our fallen man in Adam. And here's the beautiful thing. Your Savior, yes, as fully God, but as fully man, exemplified this perfectly in the work of redemption for us. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus' last miracle before the resurrection was just after Peter had cut off Malchus's ear, the ear of the high priest's servant who came, who led the garrison to come get Jesus in the garden. And Peter, in Petrine style, cut off the ear. And, um, and Jesus' last miracle that we have recorded in the Gospels before his own resurrection was the healing of the ear of the very one who led the charge to come and take him. If that was all you heard this morning, you could go home and just meditate on that and the implications of that. That if our master and our savior would exemplify so much love and mercy and kindness in the midst of so much hostility, so much unjust enmity, so much hatred and malice, so much wickedness, so much evil, 
How ought we to respond? This is the most countercultural thing in the world. You will not hear this on Fox News. I, if you do, send me the video. <laughs> Even on conservative news, you will not hear this. This is radical. You know, uh, I don't know if you've seen the video of Bill Maher. Uh, I think it's Maher, the, the comedian turned atheistic, political, I don't know what he is, and um, enemy of Christianity, and outspokenly so. And, and there was an interview where he was actually defending Christianity as over against Islam in saying that Islam as a religion is a radical, wicked, satanic, evil religion, and that the majority would be thrilled if all the infidels were wiped out. And he made this point. He said, Christianity, and, and the man that was interviewing him was challenging him back, oh, don't you think there's lots of radical Christians? He said, no, no, I don't. I don't think there's lots of radical Christians. He said, Christians don't get upset when Jesus' image is defaced. Christians don't threaten to kill you if you walk away from the faith. And what Mar was doing was actually, he was, he was actually bearing witness to what ought to be and what oftentimes is the overarching picture of true Christianity in the world, that we are people called to bless those who persecute us, to do good to those that seek our harm. Now, notice verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you are the kind of person who says, that's right, they're all going to get it. <laughs> God says, vengeance is mine. And we, we are happy about that. We will be very happy about that in glory. On the other side of Judgment Day, we will be thrilled that God pours all his wrath out on all of his and our enemies. We will be we will rejoice beyond any rejoicing ever. But in this life, in this life, we are to leave that to God on Judgment Day. We are not to vindicate ourselves personally. In fact, notice, notice what Paul does. He goes back to Proverbs 25 and he quotes Proverbs 25. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, don't go saying, that's right, I'm going to heap calls of fire on his head. It'll, that'll happen. But we're to latch on to, if our enemy is hungry, feed him. I'm going to leave you with this quote. I love this quote. Archbishop Temple said, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And you can only do it in union with Jesus Christ. And you can only do it if you know him, and you're trusting him, and you're going for repentance for your own sins and for forgiveness from God that he alone can provide through the shedding of his blood. And only people that are trusting Jesus for forgiveness for their sins can become these kinds of people. But listen, I'm going to say this this morning as, as I, I leave you with this thought. I believe that if we sought the Lord for these things, we would see amazing things happen in this congregation. We would see amazing things happen in Richmond Hill. We would see amazing things happen in our marriages. Let these things start in the home. Let them start in this church. Let them start in the church that we're connected with in this region, in this area, and other like-minded churches. Let it start in our neighborhoods. Let it start in our workplaces. Let everything that Paul's saying here about this gospel-shaped life shape you 
so that people start to say, I don't know why that person responds the way they do, but there's something different about them. There's something different about them. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, how readily we acknowledge how far short we fall of this kind of love on a daily basis in our lives, both to those in the body, to the fellowship of the saints, and to those outside in the world. We pray that you would please stir us up by way of reminder that you would stir our hearts with the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, what he has done for us at the cross. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would ever keep your sufferings and your laying down your life before us, that we might learn from you, that we might learn from you who are gentle and lowly in heart, you who loved us when we were your enemies, you who died for us when we were at war with our God. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would please cause us to grow in grace in these areas. We pray that we would be known as a fellowship of people who love deeply and sincerely and from the heart, even those who oppose us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.